Good morning again. Um, my name is Sam. I'm the associate uh, pastor here, one of the pastors here at Incarnation. Um, and I'm delighted to be with you this morning. Uh, this morning, we're wrapping up a brief sermon series uh, that uh, this is the fifth and final week in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, throughout, we've been trying to do for our church what Paul was doing for the church in Ephesus. That is, to pull back the curtain and expose the spiritual realities at work in and around the church. Paul pulls back the curtain, not so that uh, the church no longer has to play its role on the stage of creation, but so that having discovered the spiritual realities that are pressing in on uh, our, our earthly reality, we can then return to the stage with a keener sense of the more expansive heavenly drama that's playing out around us. And from start to finish, as we've seen over the last five weeks, Paul characterizes this sprawling cosmic drama as a great battle. Now, if you've not read Ephesians too much, or maybe you have and you've never noticed this, you get to chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, the verses that Lindy read for our New Testament reading. You notice the warfare language there, but maybe you think that's the only place where it shows up in Ephesians. And what we've been at pains to say throughout this series is that no, the theme, the language, and, and, uh, and concept of spiritual warfare pervades the letter from verse 1 all the way to the end. Our New Testament reading, chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, wears that the most just on its sleeve. But the whole book is no less concerned with the spiritual war in which the church finds herself. Ephesians is a manifesto on the church's spiritual war. And how do we know that? I'm doing a little bit of recap here. How do we know that? Well, because in Ephesians, Paul's primary objective is to exalt the divine warrior. Remember, over and over again in the Old Testament, God shows up as Israel's warrior king. In our Old Testament reading in Judges 7, Gideon has 32,000 men ready to battle the Midianites. But God pairs down Gideon's army until, and actually we didn't even get here in our reading, until only 300 men remain. Why? The reason is right there in Judges chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord says to Gideon, the people with you, there are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. The Lord saves. He is the divine warrior. His is the might. His is the victory and the honor. Or think about 1 Kings 18, when the prophet Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a standoff. Whose God is going to show up and consume the sacrifice with fire from heaven? Well, Baal's priests come and they dance and they wail and they cut themselves without the least response from Baal. In fact, Elijah even taunts them and says, oh, maybe he's indisposed at the moment. And then Elijah stands and he offers a simple prayer. He makes nothing of his gifts or of his might or of his abilities. And the divine warrior shows up as he did so often for Elijah 
and he consumed the sacrifice with fire from heaven. Now, sometimes in cases like these, God shows up and he's the warrior for Israel, working on their behalf. But sometimes, though, terrifyingly, God was the warrior against Israel. Sometimes the divine warrior set his face against Israel simply by refusing to give them the victory that otherwise, had they not trusted in their own strength, he would have given them. So we see this in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 15 and 17. God says, In return and rest you shall be saved in quietness and trust. This is kind of an image of, a, of an infant in her mother's arms. In quietness and trust, you shall be saved. But Israel trusted in horses and in chariots, and God refused them the victory that he would otherwise have given them. Verse 17, a thousand of you shall flee at the threat of one. At still other times, the divine warrior set his face against Israel, not only by refusing them victory, but by positively unleashing his wrath against his wayward people. That's what happens when God's people were led out into exile by the Babylonians. God is executing judgment on his people. They'd become no different than Canaanites, and Israel felt the fearful force of the divine warrior. So this is a this theme of the divine warrior, it's like, a, it's like a football that the Old Testament authors have just hurled all the way hundreds and hundreds of years later, and Paul, poof, right in the breadbasket, he catches it and just takes it running and carries it forward. So in the very thesis statement of the book, Ephesians 1, verses 20 to 23, Paul is pointing out that the risen Lord Jesus is the one in whom the divine warrior has accomplished his great and final victory. And he's done this by raising Jesus from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And now from this great victory, Paul says, there necessarily flows a new identity, a new responsibility for the church and it's right there in this image that Paul gives. God's put all things under Christ's feet, and then he's made the church to be the body of Christ. Paul is literally saying that God has made the church to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. That's the image. Another way we might put this, if we want to cut a little bit closer to the grain of uh, the language of Ephesians is that God is calling the church to embody the divine warrior. Having drawn back the curtain to expose the spiritual realities in the heavenly places, Paul now calls us to play our roles on the cosmic stage in this way, by embodying the divine warrior. So the question uh, that I want to ask in order to wrap up our series and draw, draw it all together is this. How do we embody the divine warrior? What does it mean to be the hands and feet of Jesus? And I want to tackle this question in two uh, ways, from two angles this morning. First, I want to ask what we're to do. And then I want to spend a little bit more time thinking about how we're to do it. 
So first, how do we embody the divine warrior? Well, here's what we're to do. We're to wield the word of God. Perhaps you noticed that almost all the armor mentioned in uh, Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 20 is defensive armor. There's a belt, a breastplate, shoes, a shield, and a helmet. Defensive measures all. But Paul closes the list with a saint's solitary offensive weapon. Verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God gives his people this wonderful armor to preserve us in the battle against sin, death, and hell. But none of these things are designed to carry us into the offensive. Yet the Lord Jesus himself said that it was not his church, but hell, which is on the defensive. We heard that in our gospel reading. The Lord says to Peter, on this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is, is depicting hell in defensive terms. It's the church that's crashing through the gates of hell, not the other way around. Hell, not the church, is reeling. But if hell is reeling, it's not because of what the Christian brings to the table. The Lord, remember, didn't need Gideon to be a military mastermind. He didn't need Elijah to wail and cut himself and be extra pious like the pagan priests. He didn't need Paul to be this eloquent absorbing speaker. And as good as all of his gifts of faith and righteousness and peace are, it's not going to be your strength or your gifts or your holiness that God uses to cut through the enemy like a hot knife through butter. That work is reserved for the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the Bible. So this leads to a very short first point, which leads to a second point. How do we wield it? Two simple but demanding answers. How do we wield the word to start with? You pray it. Last Sunday, Wilson preached to us a marvelous sermon about prayer. If you didn't hear it, go back and uh, listen to it later this evening. During Wilson's sermon, something occurred to me about what Paul is saying in verses 17 and 18 that, that I hadn't seen before. Notice that when Paul calls the church to pray, he's describing the way in which they are already doing something else. What? Taking up the sword of the Spirit. We're to take up the Word of God. How? By praying at all times in the Spirit. In other words, for Paul, prayer is one of the ways in which the saints take up the sword of the Spirit in our spiritual battle. The two are connected integrally. Prayer modifies what we're doing when we take up the Word. It describes it. What this means is that prayer cannot be cut off from Scripture. It's not really alive apart from the Bible. Detaching prayer from Scripture, it's like cutting off circulation to a vital organ or a limb. I've reached this point where I can no longer sleep on my stomach with my arm across my face because within about an hour, I'll wake up and my entire arm is gone. It's a little bit like that. Detached from Scripture, prayer 
can become, at best, lackluster, misdirected. At worst, like my uh, numb arm flumming up, you know, about in the middle of the night, it can become a, a danger. So my first question is, are you wielding the word in prayer? Now, it may be a new idea to you, or you may already be doing it, but you want to grow in your ability to do it. Well, so do I. So let me suggest two very practical points of application for all of us. First, if you want to wield the word in prayer, find a way of praying that saturates you in the Bible. Anglicans have this obvious starting place in the Book of Common Prayer. The late J.I. Packer called the prayer book, The Bible Arranged for Worship. This morning, I sat down and prayed morning prayer, which is a service that we have in the Book of Common Prayer. You can pray it too. You can find it for free online or go back and see what it's like. Uh, we have several videos on the um, weeks and weeks of videos on the church's Facebook page. This morning, I began with a verse of Scripture from Psalm 122. I prayed a prayer of confession that was resonant with the cadences of the Psalms. I received assurance that was laced with the encouragements and the promises of the apostles and prophets. I came before God as his forgiven child, and then I prayed the Lord's Prayer to my Father in heaven. I asked God, as David did after his great sin, to open my lips and then I praised him with the words of Psalm 95. I feasted on Psalm 22. I recognized my own likeness in the face of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Then I sang the words of Psalm 100. And I confessed the faith of the church in the Apostles' Creed. And then I prayed yet more words of the Psalms. Now, isn't that a distraction from prayer? No, absolutely not. It was only then that I got to a point where I was able to pour out my heart before God in my own words. Because early in the morning, if you're anything like me, sleepy, grumpy, distracted, it is very difficult for me to find words to pray that I have not received from the Lord's hand. I ended by thanking God for his grace and his glory and by claiming for myself, in Paul's words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's a way that I've found fruitful to shoot through my prayer life with Scripture. What's yours? I know many who have digested Scripture in other ways whose prayer lives are saturated with scripture in less formal ways but for me for whom words of prayer don't always come easily the prayer book has been a constant companion in my walk with the lord so whatever it is for you find a way of praying that steeps you in scripture now i want to suggest a second way that you can pray the word find a mentor someone who is a more mature prayer than you who can teach you to wield the word in prayer. Now, this obviously can be a living, breathing human being, and everybody at some point needs to have such a person in their lives. But equally, don't write off the dead. 
One of the wisest companions in my own prayer life has been the English Puritan Matthew Henry. I occasionally sit down for a mentoring session with Pastor Matthew. I read and journal through his 1710 book, A Method for Prayer, which is amazingly comprehensible for a 21st century person. It's like an apprentice imitating a master craftsman at work. I just carve out space in my prayer life to imitate Matthew Henry as he takes up Scripture and makes its words his own, drawing them into himself and then exhaling them, re-articulated in the mode of prayer. Now, this may sound a little bit silly. It might sound like this is disingenuous or inauthentic. Like, isn't praying using somebody else's words or being coached by another person a little bit like talking to your spouse while imitating the voice of somebody else? Let me give you a different way to think about it. The poet T.S. Eliot said, immature poets imitate. Mature poets steal. Bad poets deface what they take. And good poets make it into something better or at least something different. What I'm suggesting is that if you're an immature prayer, maybe a better way to say that, if you recognize immaturity in an area of your prayer life, imitate a mentor. The goal in doing so isn't to pray in somebody else's voice permanently. It's precisely in being apprenticed by good prayers that you learn how to pray in your own voice. So this then is the first way that I want to call us to wield the word. We pray it. But there's a second way. Once you've prayed God's word, and this is where Paul draws Ephesians to a close. Once you've prayed it, proclaim it. Listen to Paul as he uh, just comes short of wrapping up Ephesians, verse 19. Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it, underline it, boldly as I ought to speak. Now, do you think Paul's concerned about something? Yes, yes, he's got something to say. He says it three times. I need to open my mouth, proclaim the gospel, declare it, and then he says it twice, boldly. Notice he's asking the church to pray for God to help him wield the sword of the Spirit. And the key thing that we need to notice is that you cannot wield the sword silently. Many of us have heard the famous saying of St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel often. If necessary, use words. I'm about to kill some of your darlings. It's a delightful saying, and it's false. If one could really preach the gospel without words, Paul would be doing it already. He's in a Roman prison. He's imitating Christ in his sufferings. He's calling the church to enact, to dramatize, to embody the divine warrior. And he's doing it. Paul's more committed than anybody to living out the power of the gospel, to playing his role in this cosmic drama. He is an ambassador in 
chains. If he's not doing it, preaching the gospel without words, nobody is. But apparently he's not preaching the gospel. Paul's weakness, which God used powerfully to demonstrate his own strength, it's not the ministry of the gospel. The ministry of the gospel requires words. I'm afraid that many Christians today are embarrassed about the priority that Paul places on declaring the gospel message. Especially for us highbrow evangelicals who have been disenchanted by the excesses and the infidelities of merely civic Christianity. All this talk about sharing the gospel feels like a slippery slope back to obscurantism and cultural irrelevance and insipid cultural Christianity. But Paul is the last person who can be charged with any of these things. In fact, it's we who need Paul, the the guy who preaches the gospel to a seminar of leading pagan philosophers to refine us of obscurantism. It's we who need Paul, the man who challenged the totalizing identity claims of his day to help us resist our contemporary culture's amazing propensity for making reductive claims about what it means to be human. It's we who need Paul, who refused Caesar the allegiance that belongs only to Christ to teach us how to pray for and, yes, even obey our governing authorities. And what Paul emphasized to the church was that the example of his deeds was not enough. Paul, in his weakness, was demonstrating that he too had put on the whole armor of God. But his righteousness, his faith, his peace, these were not the things that God would use to batter down the gates of hell. That work was reserved for the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And so Paul prays, God, give me words to declare boldly the mystery of the gospel. This then is the second way that all God's people, everybody, must wield the word. Once you've prayed it, proclaim it. Sharing the gospel, it's not just for a few professional Christians. It's not like you hire a minister or a church planter or whatever and then leave them to get on with the work of evangelism. It's not a spiritual gift designated just for a special elite subsection of uh, super-Christians. Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Sharing the gospel is not for a few. It's for all. It's not a spiritual gift. It's a work. It's a responsibility for every Christian. So I'd like to ask some questions. And as I do, let me tell you something that I found very helpful from Rico Tice. Rico's a a minister in London who's done lots of teaching on evangelism. Now, Rico said there are two ways that a person can listen. Sometimes we can listen like we're reservoirs. In other words, I'm standing here pouring words into you and you just soak it up and soak it up. Another way to listen is like a river. I pour into you, and then you carry it on downstream, and you pass it on to others. 
So as I ask these questions, I'd like for you to, to listen, not as, a, not as a reservoir. I'm not trying to fill you up. I want to send something through you. Listen like a river. And as you do, I'd like you to call to mind, before I ask these questions, call to mind two people. First, I want you to call to mind a Christian friend. Maybe it's somebody that you know here at this church. Maybe it's a person who's passionate about the gospel and about sharing the gospel and who's skilled in completely natural ways at bringing up the things of God in conversation with friends, not forcing it, not even looking for opportunities to bring it up. It just falls out of their mouth when they open it. Think for a moment of such a person. And then secondly, I want you to think of a non-Christian friend, someone that God may be laying on your heart who needs to hear the gospel. Somebody, maybe a friend or a family member who is just waiting for another beggar to come and bring them bread. So now with these two people in mind, do you have them? With these two people in mind, let me ask you a few questions. First, do you believe that sharing the gospel is your work? Are you constantly seeking ways to declare it boldly to people who do not know it? Or are you leaving it to others? It's the responsibility of every Christian. Is it your responsibility? Okay, now maybe it's your work, but here's a second question. Do you believe that it's an urgent work? At its core, the gospel says that God saves sinners from hell through the cross for heaven. But can you believe it's an urgent work if you don't believe in the urgency and the reality of hell? Do you believe, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we are born children of wrath? Can you believe that it's an urgent work if you have simply written off the idea of hell as the preserve of crazy fundamentalists who find glee in terrorizing street corners and campus quads? Can you believe in the urgency of sharing the gospel if you've forgotten that the Bible's chief theologian of hell is not Paul, it's not any of the other apostles, it is Jesus himself. Do you believe that this is an urgent work? Maybe you know it's a personal work, and maybe you're perfectly well aware that it's an urgent work, but knowing this can crush you with a weight of responsibility. It's my work. It's got to be done now. Everything rides on it, and it's all on my shoulders. That's crushing. So here's the third question. Do you know that while sharing the gospel is your work, converting a heart is God's? When you think of speaking with your friend, do you trust that God is the one who convicts and converts her heart? Do you think that God only draws people to himself through super Christians? Or does God work through people who get nervous? Who have to 
pray for words like Paul prayed. People who just obey and just open their mouths and spit it out. Who do the simple but profound work of obedience and then trust God to show up and do amazing things. Sharing the gospel is not always easy work. Many people assume that sharing the gospel comes easily to those who do it often. In reality, it's always deeply uncomfortable. We'll always feel a tension when we share the gospel with the people that we love the most. Because on the one hand, we'll want to preserve those relationships, to say nothing that will put a friendship or standing with a family member at risk. On the other hand, we'll want the people that we love the most to taste life and to know peace and freedom and joy. And that tension is deeply uncomfortable. But I want you to know that 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 tension is not an obstacle to sharing the gospel. No, on the contrary, it is exactly what makes the gospel sing. Think about a violin string. If you relax the tension, there's no music. The tension is exactly what makes the string sing. Sharing the gospel is like this. The tensions in your desires, your desire not to risk your friendship at any cost, and your desire to save your friend at all costs. That tension is not a problem. That tension is called love. And it's the tension that makes the gospel sing. The way that God has created you to make the gospel sing. You're not a bad evangelist if you feel that tension. You're a bad evangelist if you don't. So let me remind you um, of that non-Christian friend that you brought to mind earlier. If you want to embody the divine warrior, then wield his word. Pray it. And then despite the tension, proclaim it and let the gospel sing. Let's pray. O Lord, open our lips. That our mouths may show forth your praise. Give us grace, despite how scary it is, to declare boldly the good news that you save sinners. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.